T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. DGB Nominal, where the universe is a figment of its own imagination. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. As always on the show, we have a transatlantic flavour going on because <laughs> joining me tonight all the way from the Keystone State, by the wonders of technology, should be John Berger. How you doing, sir? I'm impressed that you know that we're called the Keystone State. <laughs> I've been doing a little bit of research. <laughs> <laughs> There's something to do with the uh, the the keystone is the the, the thing that holds it in. The yes, yes. Sizzle. When if you've got an arch, the keystone is the topmost one, and that is what keeps the arch from collapsing. Yeah. And the theory behind that is that we were the state that if we fell uh, during the the uh, Revolutionary War from you folks. If we were the state that fell, then pretty much the Revolutionary War would have been lost. I've heard a couple of different things, but that's the prevailing one as to why we're called the Keystone State. Before we carry on with the show, congratulations are in order once again for honorary crew member Ryan Kobrick. Not what only now? for him, but his lovely wife Jen, who oh. have recently bought their first space cadet, Raphael, into the universe. <laughs> nice. Hope he didn't come out in a spacesuit. <laughs> right, shall we get this episode into the podosphere, John? Absolutely, and congrats to him. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. As of the 1st of July, ESA has a new Director General. It's Johann Dietrich Warner, who has taken up the duty at the ESA headquarters in Paris, France. I'm in a favourable position to nurture the seeds of Jean-Jacques Dordain's work, said Mr. Warner, during a recent media briefing at the Paris Air Show, expressing his thanks to the parting Director General. Mr. Warner called for the continuation of ESA's ongoing programmes, projects and missions in cooperation with members member states, as well as preparing for ESA's future among the many important tasks he has to fulfil. Referring to this future as Space 4.0, Mr Warner considers that ESA has already started to enter this new phase in which space has become a day-to-day business and which interaction with society, the commercialisation of space, resulting new roles for industry and a fostered cooperation relationship with the European Commission all play important roles. Previously, he was chief of the executive board of the German Aerospace Center, DLR, from March 2007 to June 2015 and served as a chairman of the ESA Council from 2012 to 2014. He succeeds Jean-Jacques Dordain, whose term of office ended on the 30th of June. Mr. Dordain is ESA's longest-serving director general who led the agency from 2003 onwards we wish mr warner all the best in his new role four candidates have been selected to be the first astronauts to train to fly into space on commercial crew vehicles all part of the ambitious plan to return space launches to u.s soil and and advance the goal of sending humans further into the solar system than ever before the candidates are as follows robert benkin Sunita Williams, Eric Bow, and Douglas Hurley. Uh, now, a couple of those names that you might be familiar with. I mean, Sunita Williams did a lot of work on um, the ISS. She's, there's a lot of videos on on YouTube with some of the experiments and things that she's been doing. Um, and Doug Hurley was on uh, STS-135, I believe, the last ever flight of the space shuttle. On the 9th of July, NASA Administrator Charles Bolden made the following announcement. For as long as I've been Administrator, President Obama has made it very clear that returning the launches of American astronauts to American soil was a top priority, and he has persistently supported this initiative in his budget request to Congress. Had we received everything he asked for, we'd be preparing to send these astronauts to space on commercial carriers as soon as this year. As it stands, we're currently working towards launching in 2017 
and today's announcement allows our astronauts to begin training for these flights starting now. We are on a journey to Mars and in order to meet our goals for sending astronauts to the Red Planet in the 2030s, we need to be able to focus on both deep space and groundbreaking work being done on the International Space Station. By working with commercial companies to get our astronauts to the ISS, NASA is able to focus on the game-changing technologies, the Orion spacecraft and the space launch system uh, that are geared towards getting our astronauts into deep space. Furthermore, there are real economic benefits in bolstering America's emerging commercial space market. We have over 350 American companies working across 35 states on our commercial crew initiative. Every dollar we invest in the commercial crew is a dollar we invest in ourselves rather than the Russian economy. Our plans to return launches to American soil also make fiscal sense. It currently costs $76 million per astronaut to fly on a Russian spacecraft. On an American-owned spacecraft, the average cost will be $58 million per astronaut. What's more, each mission will carry four crew members instead of three, along with 100 kilograms of materials to support the important science and research we conduct on the ISS. For these reasons, our commercial crew program is a worthy successor to the incredible 30-year run of the Space Shuttle program. The decision that President Bush made in 2004 to retire the Space Shuttle was not an easy decision, but it was the right decision. Yeah, this is just one of those things where uh, Congress, <laughs> the president can say whatever he wants, but... It's Congress that holds the budget strings and they're too busy doing stuff to get themselves reelected than, you know, actually doing stuff that matters. I saw a really good video about that the other day. It was like a mock presidential election campaign video and basically the, the guy on there was saying, well, I'm all for helping you guys do this, but if it offends the people that are giving me the money, then mm-hmm. I can't do it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. That's... <laughs> Uh, they, they, they talk a good game, but then when it comes down to what they actually can do, yeah, it's a totally different story. Or, you know, if Congress doesn't play nice with them, it's not going to matter. Now, along with this announcement was another announcement that eight astronaut candidates have been selected from the class of 2013. Four women and four men were selected from a pool of more than 6,300 applicants. That's a lot of people wanting to become astronauts. The candidates are as follows. Josh Casada, Victor Glover, Tyler Nick Haig, Christina Hammock, Nicole Mann, Anna McLean, uh, Jessica Meir, and Andrew Morgan. You can find out more information about the commercial crew and the new astronaut candidates in the show notes. Uh, it's really good to see new blood coming in, isn't it? Oh, it's always good. I mean, you know, more people means that there's better selection to choose from. It, it's just nice to see. You, I guess you can thank things like social media and so forth because now things are starting to get exciting again. You know, plus, just look on Twitter. There's a big push in, nowadays to get women and girls back into science and technology and, and all that other stuff. So it's it's good to see. A Soyuz U-carrier rocket with the Russian Progress M28M cargo spacecraft was launched on the 3rd of July at 4.55 UTC from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. The Progress M28M is the first Russian spacecraft to launch since Roscosmos grounded all the missions after the Progress M27M underwent a destructive re-entry over the Pacific Ocean on the 8th of May. The Progress m 28M docked with the pier's docking compartment of the ISS on the 5th of July at uh, 7.11 in the morning UTC. Guys, congratulations, your cargo vehicle has arrived. Russian Flight Director Vladimir Solov radioed from the Russian Control Center near Moscow. We congratulate you as well, cosmonaut Gennady Padalka replied from inside the station. Thanks very much for sending it our way. It feels like Christmas in July. (laughs) (laughs) The Progress spacecraft carried 2,381 kilograms of cargo and supplies to the International Space Station and is 
scheduled to remain docked to the piers compartment for about four months. Now, it's quite a relief, really, <laughs> that um, things are starting to work again. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I was watching that live and I was just like, please, just keep going, please. No problems, no problems, no explosions. Just go, 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 go. And yeah. to, to just finally see that it got up there and everything seemed to be okay, it was just... <sighs> You know, it was, it was kind of a smaller version of the first shuttle launch after Challenger. Yeah. It's like, okay, come on, just go. No problems, no problems. And fortunately, this one went without a hitch. Because, I mean, three in a row, that's that's not good, is it? <laughs> I mean, from three different areas as well. You mean, yeah. Because the, the, the SpaceX one didn't go, you had the, uh, the progress didn't work, and then it was like, oh, here we go. No, that, this was a relief to watch finally go and just like... Oh, good. The Indian Space Research Organization conducted the 30th flight of their Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle, or the PSLV, on the 10th of July. Liftoff occurred at 2158 local time, or 1628 UTC, uh, in the afternoon, from the first launch pad at the Satish Dhawan Space Center, carrying a payload of the largest number of wholly British-built spacecraft to go up on a single launch. The primary payload for the mission was a trio of satellites which will join the Disaster Monitoring Constellation or the DMC in orbit forming a new generation of satellites in this series the three DMC-3 spacecraft were manufactured by Surrey Satellite Technology Limited or SSTL for the uh, DMC International Imaging under a £110 million contract China's 21st Century Aerospace technology company will lease the three spacecraft under a seven-year arrangement providing finance for the program. Then we had two technology demonstration satellites that joined the DMC for the journey into orbit. The CBNT-1 will be used by SSTL to demonstrate Earth observation techniques while the deorbiter sail will investigate the use of deployable sail to deorbit a satellite. Um, it's a little bit like the, um, the solar sail technique. Mm -hmm. It's a similar thing. The, the Orbiter Sail satellite developed as part of a multinational program led by the University of Surrey is a 7 kilogram or 15 pound 3 unit CubeSat which will do deploy a 13 foot square sail once in orbit. It's a, it's a little bit smaller. Providing an increased cross-sectional surface of 16 square metres or 172 square feet, the sail will significantly increase the drag generated as the satellite orbits within the thermosphere. So yeah, it's another one of these CubeSats. It's, it seems to be the, the big thing at the moment, doesn't it? Well, the little thing as the case may be. Well, you know, with technology getting so small anymore, if they can get a whole bunch of sensors into this little cube that can be powered by a sail. That's awesome. Oh, speaking of which, uh, anybody who was part of the uh, light sail Kickstarter for mm -hmm. um, Bill, N Bill Nye the Science Guy, <laughs> people outside the U.S. are probably like, "What?" Anyway, uh, they're the starting planetary to society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The planetary society. Uh, they're starting to ship those things out. Oh, yeah. So I will have my one square centimeter solar sail sent to me very shortly. So you're going to frame it or something? Or? Absolutely. No, I've got, obviously got to wait to, to receive it to see what it's all about. But um, they, I just got the email earlier this week. They're starting to get those ready to be shipped out. Awesome. John, did you want to take the New Horizon? New yes. Horizons? I mean, New Horizon. What, what else? What is there to say? <laughs> we sent something past Pluto. <laughs> that was just amazing you know, to, to, to see that in just one transmission that what was just a spot of light a few months ago now all of a sudden we're seeing mountains and ice flows it's just what is there to say it's just it's amazing absolutely amazing everything that's coming through it's too bad that it's going to take a year and a half to transfer all that data back you know that, that's what you got to do when you're when you're limited on power you can't have high powered data transmissions between here and there but i mean what we've gotten back so far is amazing even just the, in the days up to it you know when we were just getting some really decent high-res images then when they started getting stuff back from not just pluto but charon or sharon however it should be pronounced it's just it's 
absolutely amazing. One of the benefits of living on the East Coast in this particular instance, I was able to watch that whole, um, you know, confirming the connection live. And the whole thing is just like, okay, come on, work, work, work. And then they're saying that this system was green, that system was green. It did not go into autonomy mode in any way. It's like, this is amazing. I just, I mean, what else is there to say? It's just fantastic. I love that the uh, the acronym for um, what's her name, Alice, wasn't it? The, the mom. lady, yeah, uh, yeah, mom, yeah, phoning home to mom. I thought that was really good. I'm trying to remember uh, what was it? Um, mission something, mission mission operations manager. That's it. Yeah, and it's just <laughs> I was thinking, okay, what what if that was a guy? Would it be like dad for? data acquisition dude or something i don't know (laughs) (laughs) be kind of odd to call a guy mom but yeah that that was just so neat and then the round of applause after every signal was or after every system was checking in green this is just a bit um alan stern when he sort of busted through the door (laughs) (laughs) oh that was cool um, I, I didn't know quite what to expect at first because you know the, the, the first part of that you had to wait for the, the actual flyby itself, right? And and thought, well, we're not going to see anything. What what are we expecting to to get at this gathering? And it was a bit strange for somebody on this side of the pond because it was kind of like I, I got the feeling of being at some kind of wrestling match, you know. Because it was a lot of flag waving and USA, USA. Okay, you know, I will admit, I was very uncomfortable with that. Um, <laughs> and, and they kept talking about that. And then the one guy um, who was directing the conference afterwards talking about how, you know, this is the you know, this is for America and this America this and America did that. I'm like, dude, shut up. This is not a, a time to be jingoistic. This was something oh, for everybody on the planet. You know, yeah, I know NASA is an American uh, administration, but it's the human race. That's it actually, is. This was a victory for everybody, you know, and, and you can't tell me that everything on that spacecraft was purely U.S. based. I'm sure that there were other countries yeah. involved in some way, shape or form. Yeah, I was not comfortable at all with, with the rah, rah, America, America, rah, rah. I, I, that really did not sit well with me. The one that you had, uh, well, it was I can't remember what time in the evening it would have been for you uh, when they were, you know, trying to get the signal back from the New Horizons probe because it was about half past one, two o'clock in the morning for me. <laughs> oh, you mean when they actually started to receive real data? Yeah. Yeah, that was about six thirty, seven in the morning, something like that. Yeah, it was uh, unbelievable. And, and, and you could see the... Um, how proud of the whole thing that, that Alan Stern was. He he was very proud of the fact that 25% of the team were women. And no reason and to not be proud, proud of that. You could see it in his face. So I, I'm just hoping now that we're getting the data back. They want to be able to use this to explore other areas. You know, I'm, I'm guessing as long as fuel allows and so forth. I, I hope they get the funding for this because this is an amazing achievement. It is. And um, I, I hope people out there have been um, signing the petition to um, get Pluto reinstated as a planet again. Uh, I have. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm, kind, I'm ambivalent about that. I, I think it's because growing up as a kid, you had Pluto there as the last planet. And for me it will always be the last planet i kind of get the reason why they said no it's not because if you've got to go if you give it to to pluto you've got to give it to a load of other ones that are yeah. probably bigger than pluto yes exactly you know so yeah a, a bunch of things in the asteroid belt and other things in the kuiper belt it's like at, at what point do we say no that's really not a planet so i can understand why they added the whole it, it's cleared of other items Restriction because, well, that's what the other planets have. I, I kind of get that. But but now we've seen it up close. We've seen other moons. We've seen other celestial bodies bigger than Pluto with just as much detail, if not even more. Where, where do we draw the line? But, but until, you know, oh, suddenly we found something else outside of Pluto that's still inside the Kuiper Belt. Uh, you know, we'll make that a planet, too. It's... It, uh, yeah, I mean, it's there... It's it, it's not going anywhere just because we gave it a different name. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of ambivalent on the whole name thing. I think for me it was just a, a nostalgic thing. 
Sure, <laughs> sure. And I know a lot of people were doing that. You might think that sending the, the New Horizon probe to a planet so far away that it takes light five and a half hours to reach <laughs> is kind of on the cheap side. Well, think again, because it costs $720 million to reach Pluto. But by contrast, the construction of the new Minnesota Viking Stadium will cost $1 billion. Do not get me started on that. <laughs> Do not. Let, let's just drop that now. Otherwise, I'm going to have a lot of sports people hating me. So let's just know. <laughs> and, and, and there's one to put past you as well. As fuel prices jump during the summer spike, keep this in mind, the new Horizons only cost 24 cents a mile mm -hmm. and will keep going for years. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand people's speculation about why are we spending so much money to send things out there? Yeah, well, why are we spending a billion dollars on a piece of steel for a select few to be able to watch a football game? I'd much rather have that money go to something scientific that could help us to learn more rather than find out, you know, who's going to get the longest amount of touchdowns for a particular team next year. I'm not anti-sports. I just don't get it. You know, it took nine and a half, almost 10 years to get it there. Mm -hmm. And to come back with such clarity and so forth. And the fact that oh, some uh, geological theories about Pluto got blown away. Yeah. You know, they, he announced that on that on that that first real meeting, you know, a few days later. He's like, yeah, we've, we've got some geological theorists going back to the drawing board now. <laughs> well, that's the thing. that They are theories. <laughs> yeah. You know, but, but just the fact that, you know, they, there, there's some theories that, you know, we would normally attribute to something like that. No, 100% wrong. We got to go back to the drawing board. Yeah, to me, that's cool stuff. A photo kind of just destroyed several theories on yep. the outer planets. That's it. That's very cool. And I was actually quite surprised at the, the clarity of them because they said, they were you know, by, by today's standards, the cameras on board were pretty basic, yeah. but they were clear as a bell. Oh, they yeah. really... <laughs> And they sent back some, uh, or, or NASA released some photos that are stereoscopic, so you get the red-blue glasses on, and you could see it in, in 3D. And that well, just helps to make the planet come alive. I'm definitely going to have to um, download those, I think. Yeah, they didn't have too many of them, unfortunately. And then when you think about the distance that it had to travel, if they were off by just a fraction, a minute, tiny, tiny, tiny fraction, it could have blown past or ran into it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I know that there was a lot of like, okay, we just want to be able to get a signal so we know it's alive. We knew it was approaching Pluto just from the other photos that were taken. But it's like, okay, please don't run into anything out there. Please don't run into the planet. You know, it's just the slightest calculation or miscalculation, and it could have been really problematic. But they nailed it. They absolutely nailed it, and it was amazing. The only mm -hmm. thing that's really sad about the whole thing is that if they want to do it again, it's going to take us another 10 years minimum. Unless they discover something in the meantime, which yeah, would, be, would be well. nice. Well, yeah, but the thing is, even if they do find some kind of miraculous new propulsion technology, it's going to take so many years to test it and and refine it and so forth. Uh, at least it will do under NASA, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, like I said, Congress has to send their money to other things to keep themselves elected. Did you see the picture of uh, the atmosphere from behind? Oh, yeah. The, that was neat. The, the haze, yeah. The haze, was, yep. They took a, a, another clear picture from the, the other side, and there was a, a what looked like, and, and uh, this will drive the conspiracy theorists nuts ah! again, um, what looked like, you know when you've got a beach ball mm -hmm. and uh, you've got the little valve that you blow it up? Yes, with, it kind of looked like that on the back. <laughs> you know, let the conspiracy theorists have their fun. It just makes more entertainment for us. <laughs> it was really spectacular. Um, and it, it was more to the point where, where you know, the, these guys had some photographs, but they couldn't actually share them at that point. The one picture of him with his reaction just from looking at the screen like, oh, my God. And then everybody's like, what did he see? What did he see? We want to know. Tell us now. <laughs> like, no, no, we can't tell you until later. It's like, oh, jerks. <laughs> <laughs> but that was also just more like you know, he's, he saw something amazing. It's going to be neat to finally have a, a full set of images of, mm -hmm. of what it took for Pluto. So and then he can probably import it into Google Maps or something. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
like they did with Mars. Yeah. Yeah, that would be so cool. As British astronaut Tim Peake counts down to his flight to the International Space Station, uh, the UK Space Agency is launching and funding an array of new incentives that will allow him to share his mission with the children of the UK, bringing the excitement of space to the classrooms and venues across the country and encouraging interest in STEM subjects. The projects were announced on the 14th of July at the UK Space Conference and uh, Minister for University and science, Joe Johnson said, Tim Peake's space mission will be a huge moment in British history that we want all young people across the country to share in. I hope that schools and students will get involved with these fantastic projects to follow Tim's journey and learn alongside him as he flies into space to carry out experiments aboard the International Space Station. Yuxa or the UK Space Agency, have invested over £1.5 million in the following projects. Um, £685,000 for uh, interactive shows at UK science centres called Destination Space. And now 20 of the nation's top science and discovery centres will launch an inspirational and exciting hands-on programme of space activities and experiments for children, schools and families across the UK. Another £660,000 for specialist space ambassadors to visit primary schools. The Tim Peake Primary Project will engage with primary schools delivering a range of free space activities that will help primary students engage with science, numeracy and literacy. Then we have another £100,000 for school projects that celebrate Tim Peake's mission. Here's Tim Peake to explain about these projects. I'm European Space Agency astronaut Tim Peake and I'd like to tell you how to get involved in my mission to the International Space Station. I'm very lucky to be launching to the Space Station in November this year. The European Space Agency and the UK Space Agency are putting together a wonderful programme for educational activities surrounding my mission. We've already had so much fun designing the mission name, the mission patch and also food for me to fly on board the Space Station. So if you're a student or a school teacher there are many ways you can get involved. For example, there'll be two AstroPi computers on board the space station with me with a whole sensor suite. You can do some great things with those, send your code up to me and I'll run it for you on board the space station. I'll also be flying some rocket seeds with me and you can apply to have some of those seeds and to grow some on Earth and compare them with the ones that were flown in space and to see if there are any differences. Also, I'm really looking forward to talking to many schools using the amateur radio system that we have on board the space station. Furthermore, lots of science centres around the UK will be putting on a show about my mission and you could take a trip there to find out more. Or you could get your school to run a space week or month or even space year. There'll be lots of educational resources to help you with all of this. So please do get involved. You can follow me on Twitter or Facebook and please head to the UK Space Agency or European Space Agency's website where you can find out much more about my mission and keep up to date with what's going on. Please get involved, and I really look forward to sharing this mission with you. Now, the UK Space Education Office, with another £140,000 funding from the UK Space Agency, will be launching the Principia Grant Scheme. Grants of £1,000 will be available for both primary and secondary schools to apply for. The money will be used for innovative projects to celebrate Tim Peake's mission to the International Space Station. Projects will be creative, have a lasting impact and can cover a wide range of subjects including STEM, art, design, drama, food and music. It's quite amazing that the the amount of funding that has been put into this to to get kids involved with this mission. It kind of brings to mind an, an Eddie Izzard skit where he's talking about that sort of thing. And he said, uh, yeah, I, I want to be an astronaut. And his counselor said, look, you're British. Scale it down a bit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's nice to see that they're trying to do this. A friend of mine who he teaches rocket science to uh, high school kids over here, like on weekends, if they want to learn about it. And it's, it's just really cool to hear him talking about how these 14, 15, 16 year olds are in his class and they're learning how to do all this stuff. So it, what else is there to say? It's just good to see that this is the kind of investment that they're they're putting into because frankly especially over here in the states uh, just because we're idiots science and math and so forth sorry <coughs> maths 
uh, they've just been plummeting because we used to really be good at that and we're not nearly as good anymore you know so I don't know what it's been like over in the UK but even if it's similar any funding to go back into science and, and STEM and so forth always good to hear the, the thing that's been different in the in the UK uh, recently, well, over the last 10 years, I would say, uh, is that more girls are excelling in sciences um, than the boys are. Good. And it's really good to see this kind of thing going on with this funding. And we have this, this big science fair that uh, happens every year, the, the Big Bang Fair. And I just wish they had this kind of thing going on when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, keep a lot. I mean, really, a lot of this is fueled from social media because now it's easier to get this information out to people, mm-hmm. and it's easier to judge demand and things like that, or just get funding. You know, that sort of thing. Great. Right, I mean, I understand this is this is coming from the UK government, but you know, if this was a private thing, up, oh, open up a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo. Yeah, you know. Definitely. So it's just. It, it's you're right. It's nice to see all of this. It's nice to see that it's not just being a, a good old boys club. Well, you see, for for us, because it's our first, how can I put it? It's our first government funded astronaut. Uh, we have had astronauts before. I mean, we we had um, Helen Sharman who went up on the the, the Mir space station back in the early nineties. Um, but she was privately funded. Um, then you've had like. The uh, like Mike Foles and Piers Sellers, who are UK born but are now American citizens, and and well, I don't think they work for NASA now. I think they've retired. But um, but yeah, that that was at one time the only way you could really get into space was by working for NASA, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's easier for you to become an American citizen and, and do it that way. Um, but now we've got more involvement with the the European Space Agency. Um, and as I say, it's, he is our first government-funded astronaut, so what I would call a proper astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really good to see. And um, from what I've been seeing, he's, he's been um, putting on the, the, the spacewalking gear and doing some training on that. So whether Tim will be conducting a spacewalk while he's up there that would be great <laughs> yeah I mean it's well, I think a lot of it also is that you've got astronauts like like Chris Hadfield who was just so into social media while he was up there oh yeah he's getting people excited about it and it sounds like he's trying to reach out to kids uh, with you know t- being able to talk to them once he finally goes up to the space station and all that this is good stuff to see um, another guy um, who, who really excelled at getting people excited into into space um, and sciences is uh, Mike Massimino uh, he's been on lots of different things on like the Discovery Channel and, and and things like that and he also um, he's been on Sesame Street as well uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he's also been in the Big Bang Theory so there you go <laughs> but he was one of the guys that was up on the uh, um, on Atlantis for the um, the Hubble um, mm-hmm. repair mission. So yeah, he's one of my uh, favorite astronauts. <laughs> Blast off into the podosphere with TGP Nominal. The three astronauts that have been living on board the International Space Station were forced to scramble to safety after what NASA described as a close pass by a piece of flying Russian space debris on the 16th of July. The uh, evacuated astronauts moved into the Soyuz spacecraft, which is attached to the orbiting station, while a piece of an old Russian weather satellite sped by at uh, one minute past eight in the morning Eastern time, uh, according to NASA. The crew of the International Space Station returned to the ISS after getting the all clear from mission control. All station systems were operating normally and the crew continued with their research work during the day. This is the fourth time in history of the station's operations that the crew have moved to the Soyuz due to a potential close pass of of daybreak. The Russian Interfax news agency uh, quoted a source in the space industry saying that that the likelihood of an object colliding with the station exceeds the acceptable level. Mm-hmm. The information came from US space monitors very late, so 
the ISS couldn't have time to have an, uh, an avoidance maneuver. The source also said that the space junk was a fragment of the Soviet meteorological satellite Meteor 2, which was launched in 1979. A lot of, of news agencies were comparing the incident with the plot of the movie Gravity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, there's one, yeah, for anyone who hasn't seen it, there's one particular scene. Well, I guess the whole premise for the whole thing. Yeah, yeah it's just pretty much. But the, the scene with the one astronaut was not fun. <laughs> oh, no. No. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's a problem. That's and, and the more stuff we send up, the more there's going to be space junk. Now, it is possible to see exactly how congested our celestial neighborhood is getting with an interactive graphic that reveals uh, real-time locations of every piece of junk and spacecraft orbiting the Earth. There is an estimated 21,000 pieces of debris larger than four inches currently orbiting around our planet, from dead satellites and bits of used rockets to a missing spatula. Mm -hmm. A lost glove and a stray toothbrush. <laughs> well, I mean, remember also, it was like, what was this, eight years ago? The Chinese launched an anti-satellite missile that blasted a satellite into millions of pieces of debris. Oh, that yeah. That doesn't huh. help. Uh, wasn't it like a, a collision of Russian satellites several years there ago was. as well? Yeah, there was, yeah. And it, it's just, th that's this is bad. I saw something a couple of weeks ago, and I, granted, this is just an idea that uh, of putting like a big space debris deflector where um, it, it sort of looks like a big tractor front, but it's angled down so that the idea is that the space debris would hit the front of this and then be deflected into the atmosphere. Uh -huh. yeah, that, that's all fine and good, but when you're talking about however many millions or billions of cubic uh, miles or uh, kilometers of space that's up there... With debris floating in it? Yeah. Yeah, that's a problem, though. But the question is, is there any real solution to it? Wally. <laughs> <laughs> yep, okay. <laughs> any real solution? <laughs> it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it, yeah. really? It could be possible... Probably not in our lifetime. Probably not. It's probably feasible that this stuff could be collected. But, yeah, as I say, it's, it is a big, it's a, a huge job. Yeah. It really is. The website that they're talking about, the, the software that they're talking about, is a, is a, a website called Stuff in Space. Mm -hmm. And it allows users to see exactly what objects are floating around out there, giving their location their orbit and their speed the site was created by james yoda an electrical and computer engineering student at the university of texas in austin with the tool it is possible to search for specific objects using their international designator code that is used to identify spacecraft and debris i'll put a link to um, stuff in space in the show notes it's amazing to look at actually and just remember those are the pieces that we know about yeah, <laughs> but uh, you you look at it and you think to yourself, we we are going to have a synthetic um, set of rings <laughs> around the planet. Yeah, <laughs> one time. <laughs> On the 20th of July, the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. launched a Kickstarter campaign called Reboot the Suits to raise $500,000 necessary to document, stabilize, and protect the spacesuit that Neil Armstrong wore during the Apollo 11 mission. The Smithsonian wanted to raise the money to put the suit on temporary display in July 2019 for the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission. And then permanent display it in its destination moon exhibit in 2020. As we record this right now, I'm looking at it right now, it's $572,870 with 19 days to go. Uh, in fact, it raised $379,000 within the first three days. So so what exactly does the Smithsonian need the $500,000 for? The majority of the budget consists of the research, the tools and materials needed for the conservation, a state-of-the-art climate-controlled display case, and 3D scanning of the suit, the helmet, and the gloves for the production of an online 3D model. 
Smithsonian spokesperson Alison Mitchell said each Kickstarter project that the Smithsonian launches, including the Reboot the Suit project, will allow the public to be part of the process from fundraising through to the completion of the work, regardless of their level of support. This is the really good idea to start these kind of projects for museums and, mm -hmm. and discovery centers and all that kind of thing. And I think people will give to these kinds of things. Well, it's, it's been proven people will give, especially to this one. Right. Because uh, it's a very important part of history. It's not only one of our most iconic artifacts of all time. It represents one of the greatest achievements in, in world history. Mm -hmm. You can still give to Reboot the Suit, and we'll put a, a link to the Kickstarter page on, on the show notes. But So they've, they've made well over their, their target. I'm assuming that they can probably put the, the, the money that they, they won't use to, to other different exhibitions that they've got there, sure, I would have sure. thought. Well, I mean, the thing that a lot of people don't understand is that, yes, the Smithsonian is funded by the federal government, but not everything. It's basic cost of operations, salaries, maintenance. That stuff is funded by the U.S. government. Anything else, you know, special stuff like this is usually has to come from contributions or some other kind of, of support. So a lot of people don't really seem to understand that. And so, so that's important to know. Plus, one thing that they do mention on the Kickstarter for the, those of us who are Yankees over here, you actually can deduct uh, a portion of this from your taxes as a charitable contribution. Uh, we, we do a similar thing over here for different uh, charity-based exhibitions and things that you can go to. Uh, we call it gift aid. <laughs> that, that's what okay. they call it here. And I said, well, you know, if, if it means getting some money back off of George Osborne, now Chancellor of the Exchequer, yeah. I'm all for that. <laughs> This is very cool. I love also the fact that they're making scan data available for people to, you know, 3D print your own if you really want one. I've been looking at some of the some of the options that they have for this. The one that really struck me, just being a total Star Trek geek, is that for the $55 pledge, you get a mission patch that was designed by Mike Okuda, who was pretty much the guy that designed just about everything on Star Trek Next Gen, DS9, Voyager, all of that. And uh, he's making an exclusive patch for that. I was like, ooh, I know that name. I know what that means. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, they, they do quite often have... Uh you know, give give us some money and and we'll give you something just like they did with the um, the Star Wars Force for Change. Uh, there are a lot of movies doing that now. Yeah, which is very cool to see. That's the only one I've been involved in, but I yeah. still get emails from them saying, "Hey, do you want to get involved in this? Uh, do you want to appear on Jimmy Kimmel?" Yeah, uh, I, I love the thirty dollar one because you get one of those uh, space ice cream bars with the uh, reboot the suit logo. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever had those? Oh, they are awful. <laughs> they're they're <laughs> terrible, but they're still kind of cool. <laughs> I think every museum in the world stocks them. <laughs> <laughs> That's just one of those things. It's like, it's awful, but I've got to have it. <laughs> you, you go to these kind of museums. And it's like, here, ha here, have a pen that works in space. But I'm, yeah. I'm not going to space. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, yeah. but yes i've had one of those space pens too and the stupid thing leaked so <laughs> yeah that sounds about right <laughs> the united launch alliance delta 4 rocket has successfully deployed um the seventh usaf wideband global satcom communications satellite on the 23rd of july following a weather related postponement of the flight on july the 22nd the delta 4 flew with an upgraded first stage which consisted of a single rs 68a engine which is the same engines used on the delta 4 heavy and is the most powerful cryogenic rocket engine in the world generating 3,137 kilo of liftoff thrust. Now that is <laughs> powerful. Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. That's powerful. The, the idea is that all the rockets in the fleet use the same engines to reduce costs. Yeah. Uh, which makes perfect sense. It's pretty much what SpaceX does. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, speaking of which, I don't see this in the notes for discussion. They they think they figured out what happened with that SpaceX rocket. Yeah, it was a bit um, hit and miss at one point, wasn't it? Of uh, they were speculating more than anything else, but yeah, yeah they they seem to have um, come up with something now. It's um, I can't remember what they said it was. A support strut, yes. inside that just holds you know that holds tanks and so forth in place. And what they found is that a small portion of the struts that they had from whatever contractor failed under you know conditions that it should have had plenty of of tolerance for and mm-hmm. they think one of those struts got in there and uh so that when it took off the stresses and the vibrations and so forth was enough to break that one strut which ruptured the tank you know and and just lowered the uh, structural integrity of this of the rocket wow i just think it's amazing that they even figured that out because you know they didn't have sensors on the struts <laughs> just the fact that they were able to deduce that that is at this point most likely the cause for that rocket failure that alone is mind-boggling for me i'm, I'm just thinking that there was somebody at the contractors going you know what i think one of these actually got through to the end user um <laughs> I thought they, they said that they tested them and they came up with a number of them. But, I mean, granted, it was still a small percentage, but mm-hmm. they, they found several of them that had that uh, structural problem with it. And they just think that that's what made it into the rocket. Yeah, it's a, an unfortunate thing, but uh, if, if it is 100% certain that's what it is then things can move on very quickly now I would have thought hopefully the satellite that was on board the uh, Delta 4 was sent on its way 42 minutes after liftoff ready for its climb into the geostationary orbit to join the operational satellites that are in a constellation there at the end of the year now we mentioned at the top of the show that Jen and Ryan Kobrick about bringing little Raphael in, into the world. Well, this launch was Raphael's first. <laughs> um, Ryan tweeted, uh, Raphael's first rocket launch last night. There'll be many more for him to see. Hashtag RNK. Hashtag WGS7. Hashtag Delta 4 at ULA launch. Hashtag <laughs> Cape Life. This was put with an awesome picture of the Kobrick family viewing the launch from their balcony at their home, which I think that's nice. Great. <laughs> that that would be an awesome view to have. To, to think that they're that close that they can, um, you know, on a summer's evening, <laughs> just sit there and watch the launch from <laughs> from their home. Well, it's actually kind of cool. Every now and then, um, some you know, uh, rockets and so forth get launched out of Virginia mm-hmm. and they say, okay, you know, if you live within this area, then if you look down, if you look to the, toward the horizon or whatever, you should be able to see it. And I'm actually within that range, but unfortunately there's just too much clutter and buildings and so forth around me that I can never see the things. Back home, we had a place called Westcott. Now, Westcott is famous in the UK for rocket testing. <laughs> And quite often, when we were kids, well, obviously we never used to read the local paper to find out what was going on. And the next thing you heard was this <laughs> this rocket <laughs> kicking off, and you can hear it for miles. Um, and also, they used to test some of their um, alert warnings as well, which is very similar to an air raid warning siren. Nice. And I can remember one time when we were at school, and one of these. Um, warning sirens went off and of course we're we're used to watching these old newsreel films about second world war with Mm -hmm. the air raid sirens going off because as kids we're thinking oh my god (laughs) 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 you got a couple of kids hiding under the table you know that kind of thing but they have to test them every now and again well that happens over here too we've got the emergency broadcast system and yes. that that goes over radio and whatever. And every now and then you'd be changing the the channel or whatever, and you'll just hear the the alert going off. It's like, uh oh, what's going on? This has been a test of the emergency broadcast system. It's like, oh, really? <laughs> I'm better than a real emergency, I guess. Westcott is no longer used as a uh, rocket testing center, but uh, it's now reopened as a kind of a business park and. They still have a checkpoint there before you go in and and they still check your car, you know, put the mirrors under the car and everything. Um, It's because it's still a classified area, even though it's now a business park. 
Okay. They're hiding something then. There's something Which on that space that they didn't get rid of. There. Yeah. yeah, they didn't get rid of something there. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you know, could be some missile silos or whatever. You never know. Two Chinese satellites have been launched on top of a, a Long Marsh 3B rocket and rode into orbit uh, nearly 14,000 miles above the Earth to expand China's space-based navigation network. The Long Marsh 3B rocket lit its hydrazine uh, burning first stage and four strap-on boosters at uh, 12.29 UTC on the 25th of July and soared away from the Zhejiang Launch Center in China's southwestern uh, Sichuan province, according to the state-run news agency. A Yuan Yang upper stage injected the two Beidou um, satellites into a near-circular orbit of about 13,700 miles above the Earth three hours after liftoff. The Yuan Yang um, space tug uh, flying for the second time on a long march launch vehicle put the tandem payloads into an on-target orbit near their final operating positions the satellites are the second and third units to reach the orbit in a new 35 satellite constellation that china is developing to provide global navigation coverage by 2020 when complete the beidou system will join the u.s air force's global positioning system Russia's GLONASS satellite network and the European Galileo fleet, which is still being deployed as the world's four navigation services with global reach. Uh, having those four there, that'll cover pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I think there will be certain restrictions, especially from the um, Chinese one. <laughs> I'm sure, yes. NASA's um, exoplanet hunting Kepler spacecraft has spotted another Earth-like world. Mm-hmm. The space agency has announced that the discovery of Kepler 452b, the smallest planet we've found yet um orbiting inside a star's habitable zone, which is a place around a sun where it's warm enough for liquid surface water. NASA researchers are dubbing Kepler 452b as Earth 2.0. Kepler 452b is about 60% larger than Earth and orbits its parent star, Kepler 452, once every 385 days. Just 20 days longer than Earth orbits the Sun. Kepler 452 is also a lot like our own host star. Um, It's roughly about the same size and temperature and only 20% brighter. Kepler-452 is also 6 billion years old, approximately 1.5 billion years older than our own sun. Um, Kepler-452b's system is about 1,400 light years away from our solar system, located in the constellation Cygnus. NASA researchers don't know its exact mass or what it's made out of, but they have said that previous research has shown that the planet the size of Kepler-452 are usually rocky. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. And and since an exoplanet has spent 6 billion years in orbit uh, around its star, the chances are good that life may be dwelling there. This is really the first step and humankind's first step to answering the question, are we alone in the universe? John Jenkins of, of the SETI Institute said at a NASA press conference. You and I won't be traveling to these planets, but our children's children's children may. (laughs) Uh, The Kepler spacecraft was launched in 2009 with the goal of searching for other Earth-like worlds within the Milky Way galaxy. So far, the spacecraft has found 4,696 exoplanet candidates and follow-up observations and through the combined efforts of Kepler and other um, astronomers, 1,927 exoplanets have been confirmed in the cosmos. That's a lot of exoplanets. And this is why we need warp drive. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's kind of exciting really that they've you know they found a planet that is um, similar to our own um, well, I mean really that was just a matter of time more than anything else because it, it had to happen there's no way there's absolutely no way my, my, my brain just can't process the idea that we're the only life in the universe what makes us so special <laughs> what makes us so special absolutely I just <laughs> It, but, you know, that is one of the things that I've always lamented that I will probably never know. Uh, these people that say, you know, if there are other forms of life out there, why haven't they contacted us? Actually, that's, to, to quote Calvin and Hobbes, that's probably the surest sign that there's intelligent life in the universe that none of it has tried yeah. to contact us. Yeah. I mean, if you'd have seen us, you'd keep away from us. Uh, exactly. This. <laughs> this is, I'm going to try to keep it a tempered rant. <laughs> you know, I know I don't like on my other my, on my main podcast. I generally just rant and go on, but I'm going to try to keep it a little bit tempered on this one. Yeah, th- we've got the fourth uh, independent expert who has said that yes, we have found something from this impossible, quote unquote, impossible uh, EM drive, saying that we've actually been able to get a couple of micro newtons of thrust. And the whole thing with this is that it's supposed to be using microwaves and so forth in a chamber, and and it's supposed to be generating thrust, which is in complete violation of the laws of conservation of momentum. And so this has now been, uh, I mean, China said, yeah, we found something with this. Uh, not NASA per se, but one of their... Sort of like how you have uh, Skunk Works with Lockheed Martin. I think this is called Eagle Works with NASA, where just, you know, their people are allowed to just play with certain things, although it's not really NASA doing it. Well, one of those guys said, yeah, we found something, too. And now someone else, uh, let me try to find it here, uh, Martin Tajmar or something, I, I apologize for that, uh, is a professor and chair for space systems at Dresden University of Technology, Technology in Germany, and I can't talk, uh, said that he has played around with his own EM drive, and he also has shown that it produces thrust, although it's for reasons that he cannot explain. So he presented his results to the uh, American Institute for Aeronautics and Aeronautics Propulsion and Energy Forum and Exposition. <sighs> they couldn't have an acronym for that one, could they? <laughs> so he, he just pr- he just uh, gave his results on uh, July 27th. And his paper's been published on it. Now, again, this is not a peer-reviewed paper. There are no... There's nothing proven about any of this. But the one thing that's that's bugging me about this whole thing, immediately, immediately, a bunch of people come out saying, no, no, this is not working. You know, th- what you're seeing are residuals from other things. Like, for example, they're using microwaves, so the chamber's going to get hot. And when the chamber gets hot... Even if you turn the engine off, you're still going to see activity coming out of it just because of the heat that's generated. I get that. I, I totally get that. But the one thing that's driving me nuts about this is that everybody who is against this thing keeps quoting the laws of the conservation of momentum. You can't have this engine because it violates the laws of the conservation of momentum. And the, the one article that came out, you know, saying, no, these German scientists have not confirmed that this worked. The whole thing closes, you know, a scientist saying, I'm going to spend my time thinking about ideas that don't violate the conservation of momentum. This whole thing is really starting to irritate me, only because it's being so easily dismissed. Don't get me wrong, I'm not one of those people who's like, oh my god, this is the future, why can't you people see that? You know, I'm not one of those, but it's just amazing to me how this is just being dismissed because, well, it violates the laws of the conservation of momentum. Okay, number one, humans are the ones who created or wrote such laws based on what we know. Uh, Mm -hmm. Number two, that does not mean that we know everything there is to know about the laws of conservation of momentum. It may be what we know now, but that doesn't mean that that is the absolute of what we know. You read the comments, there are a lot of people that are saying, uh, you know what, as much as we understand their skepticism, a lot of people seem to be dismissing this right out of hand. So, I mean, I'm not the only one feeling this. Once again, that is only a theory. Oh, it is. It is. And again, this is not a peer-reviewed paper. But it just... The, the one thing that struck me is, uh, again, that, that friend of mine who teaches um, rocket science told me a few years ago, and I was thinking about this, that uh, Newton had some ideas on fluid dynamics. Mm-hmm. And 
the, you know, obviously this was back in the 17th century. So it was all about how particles you know, are supposed to interact only with the surface and not with each other. And that was one of his ideas on fluid mechanics. But it just kept failing over and over again. So he you know, couldn't figure out why. But unfortunately, that way where the molecules still would have to interact with each other, that's all that you had uh, back in the 17th century because that's all you could see in nature. And, and you know, so no matter what, we always had a situation where molecules would run into each other. But then suddenly jump ahead to the 20th century and now we've got hypersonic flight We've yeah. got space flight. Mm-hmm. And because of that, oh, hey, suddenly these these ideas on fluid dynamics worked. So all these things that were, I don't want to say dismissed, but it's like, it's not working. It's not working. You know, we just, we, it's just simply not working. All of a sudden, oh, wait, we have hypersonic and space flight. Hey, his ideas work. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's, it just comes down to, we don't know, but just dismissing it to me just seems it's not even so much dismissing it because, you know, really, it just can't work. But it's just the way that it's being so, so very much, no, this can't work because of laws that humans wrote. <laughs> so, therefore, they're absolute. And is, the whole point of science is that these things are there until proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. That is the whole thing about science. No, I understand that. But the other thing with science is, you know what? There might be, might be some plausibility to this. Maybe we should investigate further. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say no until I've actually, okay, let me have a look at it. Show me. <laughs> then I'll make a decision on that, you know? Well, I, again, I, I completely understand that. But now we've had four different sources saying, you know, there might be something here. But then we we still have... Even some of the articles that are written are just like, no, violates the laws of the conservation of momentum. Well, you know, at one point, Einstein said we couldn't have nuclear energy because we wouldn't be able to split the atom mm-hmm. in, in a controlled environment anyway. Well, we know better now. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just it just kind of strikes me the way there's such pushback against this. I've just never seen such pushback against anything else that's been, I don't want to say discovered because we don't know. Uh, it, it just strikes me as amazing how how vocal it normally has got something to do with the fact that people that are naysayers are mm-hmm. normally got something to lose if something is proven otherwise interesting um, something to well, I'm just well, based on that I'm thinking what is there to lose I mean even let's face it even Stephen Hawking who is one of the most brilliant minds on the face of this planet he was wrong about the Higgs boson he lost yeah. a bet yeah, that is probably one of the biggest discoveries ever. Mm-hmm. And he was just saying, no, it can't be done. It can't be. Oh, look, I it happened. I lost. <laughs> so, you know, and again, that comes down to, hey, here we go. Here's the data. We are going to allow, allow it to be peer reviewed and so forth. And that's the big thing. I understand that. You know, it's, it's release your papers, make it peer reviewed, allow other people to see what you did and all that. I don't know. It just it's one of those things that you read under the surface to all of the naysayer articles and it just seems to be really really just very much no this can't possibly be and it's just it's actually just starting to rub me the wrong way a little bit even if it is completely wrong it'll never happen it's just like nobody even wants to give it a chance yeah, I was talking to uh, Loretta with, you know, people like uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Mm-hmm. People scoffed at his ideas. And at a later stage, it's been proven that some of them would work. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> It's just, it just the, the kickback and the pushback against this just seems to be so strong. A lot stronger than I would have expected from a scientific community. It, yeah. it, it kind of seems like the pushback against this when you have four different groups, unassociated groups, saying, yeah, we kind of found something. And then to suddenly say, no, it can't be. That just, to me, seems more anti-scientific than anything else. Yeah. Um, science is... Well, you, you've got to be pretty open-minded about things. And that does seem very closed-minded. <laughs> it, it does, which is is it's just it just i don't know it's just one of those things that seems to be showing itself under the surface of all of these articles 
just wanted to get that out there. See, f- you know, find out what other people think about this. Am I totally? Well, I know I'm not off the the off the rocker completely because, like I said, the, the one article that I read saying no, no, they they actually did not discover this or, or no, um, not discover, but they did not build this engine. A lot of the comments were, um, you guys are being really dismissive. A lot of the comments. In fact, I'd say probably the majority of them, which made me feel a little bit better about it. But, you know, then again, we've seen some Internet comments. (laughs) Some of them don't necessarily say the best about humanity. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen some of those as well. (laughs) Things I think. It just asked several, you know, female scientists what kind of comments they've gotten. Mm hmm. I think I know where you're going with that. (laughs) (laughs) Spamhead Productions are a small, independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spamhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spamheadproductions.weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. Now, before I go, I've got to thank Mr. Berger again for coming on board with us. And I thank you again for having me, sir. Right. I think we'd better power down now before we get a bit too carried away. And uh, I think you need to end that with a Pac-Man dying sound. <laughs> <laughs> that that should be the coda to, the, to this episode. Just the sound of Pac-Man dying. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit www.tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can also listen to rebroadcasts of all our shows on the Awake Radio group. You can find a link on our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages, and don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.